You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. You can support our show by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash laborwave and following us on SoundCloud and leaving us reviews on Apple Podcasts. This episode is on the union-busting playbook and how to fight it, as told by workers at No Evil Foods. Our guests discuss in detail the tactics of No Evil Foods union-busting, including a marathon series of 14 hours of captive audience meetings, illegal firings, and censorship, and how workers should prepare for aggressive anti-union campaigns conducted by bosses. This episode also includes never-heard-before-leaked audio from these captive audience meetings given by owners of No Evil Foods, and you should listen to it quickly because it might not be available for very long as the company is aggressively trying to censor this content. We hope you enjoy this conversation on Labor Wave. I have guests today, workers from No Evil Foods that have been involved in a long-term union campaign at the company. I want to give you the opportunity to go ahead and introduce yourselves and then just really jump right in and talk about your experiences trying to build this union. So who, who do I have on the call? Hey, I'm Max. I worked at No Evil from uh, June of 2019 until March of this year, 2020, and I was a big part of the union organizing drive, I suppose, early on. So I'm John. Uh, I started with No Evil um, about this time last year, and I was let go in May, on May Day, actually. I was fired for a social distancing violation, which uh, I immediately challenged with the NLRB. And that case was recently resolved. And uh, yeah, that's kind of a little summary, but we can get into all that. Yeah, talk about twisting the knife, firing you on May Day. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I'm Megan. Um, I was pretty involved in the organizing drive at No Evil Foods. Thanks for talking to me. Uh, I know this has been a grueling campaign and I there's just a lot to cover. But let's start first just for our listeners. Who are No Evil Foods? Like what kind of company is this? What do they sell and how do they brand themselves? So they are a plant-based company. They make uh, plant meat. They have, as of like right now, as far as I know, they've got um, a, a mock chicken product called Comrade Cluck. That's my favorite product because of the the irony of uh, what they ended up doing. They have a product called Comrade Cluck. Uh, they used to have a product called El Zapatista, which was um, recently changed due to, uh, they, they won't admit this part, but they decided to change the name of that to El Capitan and uh, it just so happened to coincide with some people who are involved with the actual Zapatista movement not being very happy about their product being named that, um, especially considering what they did this year. And what are the other ones? Um, uh, Ed the Stallion is a uh, vegan sausage and, oh, and the Pit Boss, which is like a pulled vegan pork. And they brand themselves, you know, I mean, uh, that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier. Uh, they have a product called Comrade Cluck, and they had a product called El Zapatista. They talk about, you know, being revolutionary leaders and being very uh, forward-thinking people and progressives. And if you look at their social media pages, especially on Instagram, you can see that they brand themselves as very lefty, but that's not quite the case. Their support for social causes, in my opinion, ends where workers' rights begin. Absolutely. 
on that note, what has been the experience of working for the company? So they have an outward facing presence. They claim to be lefties and support social causes. I do love the fact that the Zapatistas got them to stop calling one of their products, uh, like naming it after them. But what has been the experience of actually working for this company? Well, um, when I first started there, I really loved the job. You know, I've said this before, and I think a lot of people who are a major part of that organizing drive feel the same way, including John. Like, we were happy to be there. I don't eat meat. So immediately I was excited to be making a product that, you know, I I thought was actually, you know, I bought into their marketing. How, you know, oh, this is going to save the world. This is such a forward thinking company. They're changing up the meat industry and all of that. So it was a really exciting thing for me when I got on board. I thought that I was going to make a career out of this place. There were little things like here and there that made you kind of think, hmm, something's off here. Like some of the protective equipment that they had for us was a little questionable, but it it wasn't anything that made me... I didn't jump headfirst into the organizing drive, really. It was more like I kind of knew what was going on, wanted to sign a card because I knew it would be good for uh, the workers in general. But I didn't have anything that I was specifically like really upset about with the company until they pulled the mask off and started all of this anti-worker stuff and really put targets on the heads of everybody that was trying to organize. So I would actually say that I was really happy with the company until all of this happened. So Megan, you're saying that folks really enjoyed the company. They liked the idea of it being like a forward thinking product, trying to minimize the impact of meat consumption, you know, and industrial farming. So I'm kind of curious to hear from you all about like, what was the motivation to start forming a union? you know, considering that there were aspects of the job that you enjoyed. And maybe, Max, you can jump in here and share, you know, what do you think was the initial impetus for forming a union? I know there was uh, talk of it before I had even really joined or like shortly after I joined the company. I think some of it might have come from people who had been working at the smaller facility that they were at and had seen some of the changes taking place. You know, it was basically it was a company that was looking to grow and upscale really significantly. And, you know, I think that just obviously gives a lot of workers concern that their needs and their rights are going to be affected. And so I think that's why folks started looking into unionizing. And how many workers are employed at No Evil Foods? Oh, right now, I really have no idea. When I first started, like, it was probably around like 50-ish, but now it's over a hundred, I think. What what do you guys what John and Megan, what do you think? I think that sounds right. Yeah, so during the union drive there were only about like sixty hourly employees, maybe. Might have been more, but I think it was like around sixty. By the time that I left in uh June of this year or, yeah, in June of this year when I left, there was close to a hundred employees. And now that they've opened up an overnight shift, I believe there's quite a few more. I would guess it's anywhere between one and two hundred now. Expanding their operations you know, in my impression, my my experience labor organizing is often also a tactic to help bust unions. You know, you keep adding new employees, becomes harder and harder to keep up with that campaign. I'm wondering now if like we could do a kind of a quick play-by-play of the history of this union campaign and where it's at today. I want to say for our listeners, there's a lot of great resources that you all have gathered on the website. 
moevilfoods.com. So that's moevilfoods.com. Podcast interviews, articles written about the campaign. So there's a lot there that I don't think will cover every single detail of it. But if you want to learn more, you can there. So could one of you all, whomever wants to volunteer for this task, just jump in and kind of offer a quick like snapshot of the campaign, some highlights along the way, and the current status of it. I started in June 2019. And shortly after I had started, um, one of the uh, supervisors on second shift was already kind of, I don't know how early he had started, but he was very uh, publicly kind of trying to gauge interest for the union. You know, he was a supervisor. He was able to kind of talk to us about it at like uh, pre pre team huddles, you know, at the start of the shift and stuff. But that also meant it was on management's radar. My understanding is a group of people went directly to management and kind of asked for their blessing or, you know, what what have you, uh, expecting maybe that management, because of the kind of branding and messaging of the company, might be online with something like that. But to my understanding, they were, you know, not <laughs> not happy with that. And so it kind of went on, but that's when they had a very initial uh, kind of all-team all meeting where uh, Mike Wolanski, the founder and CEO, gave the big speech about how we're a family company and he going to come in and make all these changes and you're not going to be in control of it anymore. And, you know, it was the same almost boilerplate uh, speech that he gave again when the union drive kind of spiked back up in uh, January of this year. Shortly after that, you know, that didn't kill the drive by any means. But shortly after that, they changed our schedule from we were doing four days a week, uh, nine hours a day, Monday through Thursday with optional Fridays that were they were totally optional run most weeks so that people could kind of get overtime as they wanted and as they needed it. It was a very flexible, kind of cool perk. And they changed it because of ongoing production demands. There is their, you know, reasoning for it to a five day a week, you know, more standard 40 hour work week. There were a lot of employees who had other jobs, who had other, you know, they had lives. And so it didn't jive with them. And with their new with the new schedule and they were kind of brushed off and a lot of people ended up like there was a mass quitting of like over half of the first shift because they were upset about the schedule change and i mean i think a lot of people were miffed uh the the old schedule was a big perk for why i was really excited in the job in the first place because it gave you so much opportunity to focus on other things in your life and then they just kind of changed that and that was at the they announced it at the beginning of august and i think it was implemented at the beginning of september so it was a very sudden and quick change and that ended up with a lot of the big name people who had been supporting that early union drive uh leaving at that time including the supervisor who kind of got me on board with it on second shift it kind of lay dormant for a while until i feel like it must have been maybe in early october or so i had signed a union card and so one of the union reps reached out to i'm sure several people about you know trying to kind of get the ball rolling again and I just kind of answered and said, yeah, I'll come, you know, meet you and talk with you. And from that, I just kind of, they gave me a bunch of union cards. And I just kind of started prodding at people that I knew were supporting it earlier, kind of talking to newer people. That's kind of around, shortly around that time. Well, what month did you start, John? About November. So that's kind of when I got John on board with it. And we really kind of just started in earnest. But it was a lot more secret that time because we obviously knew at that point that management wasn't, was as opposed to unionization when you all initially approached management about you know it sounded like for voluntary recognition for the union thinking 
I, I imagine thinking since they're a progressive branded company that they would be supportive. Was that prior to starting to affiliate or get the support of the UFCW or was that already a relationship that had been built? I wasn't there at that time, so I'm not 100% sure, but I think that they might have wanted them to uh, kind of do like a, you know, more informal, like not affiliated with a larger union kind of union, because obviously I think that they expected that that would go over better with management too and kind of jive with the whole like family company aspect. But the UFCW were who they had like tapped by the time I was in it on Ju- in June. Like, that's who they were speaking with at that point. And that's kind of why we picked back up with them. Like at the time we didn't really look into other options. We just kind of kept the ball moving because of what they had gotten started with the UFCW. And I mean, I know when I was first told about them, you know, we were impressed because they told us about how they're one of the big groups that's been trying to unionize Walmart forever. And, and we knew about how they had helped the Smithfield factory that was also somewhere in North Carolina. So like, you know, it just seemed like an organization that was doing good work, but we didn't really look into other alternatives at that point. I just kind (laughs) of picked it up because that's what they were, who they were talking with. To kind of get closer to the present, I know that you all did file for an election with the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. And the vote happened, was the vote prior to the pandemic or during the pandemic? It was uh, prior to. And I know the outcome wasn't the way you all want it. So I'm kind of curious, what happened immediately after the vote? Like, what's the current status of the campaign? Yeah, the vote definitely didn't go the way that uh, we had hoped. Um, We knew it was going to be close, but it ended up not being very close and not in our favor. Um, And we can go over all of why we think went wrong with that and everything that happened. But as far as the union drive there stands now, I know like we're still in contact with a handful of people there, but it's really unfortunate because um, No Evil Foods, I think, has done a very good job at shutting up any union drive that would still be going on. It's really unfortunate because there were a bunch of people there who even after the union drive were wanting to still, you know, make demands for what we needed and wanted to stand up to management when we thought something was off. And with their COVID response, they ended up losing a third of the people that were there and the organizing drive took a major hit. And then the remaining people were either subsequently fired or bullied out of there for the most part. And it it just kind of fizzled the uh, union drive. I still have hope that, you know, the workers will come together. Um, when I was there, it was, it was still relatively cohesive. People were friends with each other. Like the, the union drive created a lot of tension. But what really needs to happen is that no evil food employees need to bring back that solidarity and understand that what happens to one person at that workplace is going to happen to everybody. And if they don't band together, the company is just going to be able to do whatever it wants. So I I hope that it picks back up, but it's kind of hard being an organizing force when you're no longer there. Yeah, there were a lot of people who were very um, anti-union. I guess they thought that they were going to have some kind of a career there for voicing their anti-union views at these meetings that they forced us all to sit through. But a lot of those people ended up getting fired after the union drive for really stupid reasons, even though they were very much on management side during the actual campaign. I think that a lot of the details of your all's organizing experience will come out throughout this conversation. 
And what I was wanting to tease out is more of kind of the lessons learned that you're both hinting at here, like the things that you wish you knew at the beginning of the campaign, the middle towards the latter phase. What do you wish you knew back then that you now know now about organizing a union, even with a company that claims it's a big family? I, I said this on other podcasts too. I I personally had no idea how bad these captive audience meetings were going to be. And I feel like that's what really turned the tide with everything. I think we could have gotten that union in there had management not gone on this like insane anti-union campaign with their fancy union busting lawyers at Constangi. They uh, basically what ended up happening and y'all can chime in too, like, but I'm pretty sure we're all on the same page with this. What ended up happening was in these meetings, and I could go on about them for hours, but what ended up happening was management would provide us with like misleading information or fractions of stories about how corrupt the UFCW is without actually showing the outcome of what happened. Like they, they really harped on like this whole embezzlement issue that happened a few years back with two of the union leaders. And they failed to mention to everybody that, you know, these people were held accountable and had to pay back everything that they stole. And this was done through an investigation, like through the union. It wasn't even like some outside force came in and had to stop all the union corruption. And so it was just little things like that. So I feel like the organizing drive, instead of focusing on what we could get out of this union and what demands that we could potentially make and what people were looking for out of this job, we were constantly playing defense with management. It just became this like back and forth of like, well, this isn't the whole story and management going, well, you can interpret it that way. And it, it just a lot of back and forth like that. And I think that kind of divisiveness played into why people didn't really want a lot to do with, you know, having the union because it was causing so much turmoil within the company albeit that was being manufactured by management because I don't think that would have happened had they not gone so hard against us. But I just think focusing on what people need from a workplace and what wages they need and what benefits could be better. So just sticking to the issues instead of just trying to play defense to all of management's nonsense. You know, it's a playbook that all these companies use to thwart unions. It's been used for decades. So instead of putting all your energy and focus into that, you need to be focusing on like the actual issues that affect the workplace. And I think that we all could have done a better job on that. Although for a lot of us, this was our first time trying to organize anything. So we were kind of going in dark and just doing the best we could. At least I was. <laughs> we kind of figured out about the whole union busting playbook in the middle. I mean, it was I, too late. It, yeah. I mean, <laughs> at least I did. I, I remember printing out pamphlets and, and trying to get them out there about like the bullet points of anti-union, uh, how they respond to unions. And these basically, like Megan said, there's a whole playbook involved on these tactics that they use. And it was too late at that point. And so for me, I think one of the biggest things as far as regrets goes is trying to figure out a better way to maintain that solidarity with everybody and get everybody involved and on board and, and figuring out what they need and then getting them together outside of work in some fashion, because I feel like almost everybody who voted yes was involved to some extent, maybe not extensively, but just to some degree with coming to 
meetings outside of work and talking about it outside of work and being involved with it. And there was kind of like this group of people who were really pushing for it and kind of talking. And if we had expanded that group a little bit more and built that solidarity and had more time for that, then I think that might have helped too. The captive audience meetings, from what I was reading, you all said something to the effect of more than 14 hours were spent in these mandatory captive audience meetings. Is that is that right? Or is it even worse than that? So, um, oh, yeah, John just said it felt like it. But <laughs> so like the way that they, they did these meetings is probably one of the craziest things I've ever experienced. They had seven, I think it was seven meetings total, and they lasted anywhere between one hour and two hours, more typically leaning towards an hour. So yeah, we had at least seven hours worth of these meetings, probably closer to 10, 11, 12, something like that. It was pretty horrific. They jammed like they would stop production. They thought this these meetings were important enough to halt production for one to two hours in the middle of the shift to cram everybody into this tiny room that was probably only meant for five or six people and just aggressively told the entire shift. They split us up into different shifts. So like we were all on night shift. So they would cram night shift into this tiny room and just aggressively tell us about how bad unions are and about how bad the UFCW was and how much harder it's going to be to fire sexual harassers. And, you know, people were speaking up at these meetings. Um, I couldn't shut up at them because I, I just, I can't hold my tongue, but we would be doing that back and forth that I was talking about earlier, that playing defense. And it would just get so heated. And what I didn't realize at the time is that I think that's what they were trying to do is to make everybody upset. So we came off like these irrational, like crazy people. But what happened was they were just throwing all this misinformation at us. And it was really bad. I actually had Sadra Shadell, one of the owners, she was talking about sexual harassment in the workplace and how a union wouldn't be able to adequately represent somebody who was a victim of sexual harassment in the workplace because they would also have to protect the sexual harasser. You know, they, they were just really playing up on the fact that sexual harassment could run rampant in the workplace because the union doesn't have to take up any cause they don't feel like. And, you know, it's harder to fire people, you know, once a union is in here and just making it sound like sexual harassment would become this giant problem. And, you know, I raised my hand and I told this woman, Sadra Shadell, that, you know, this is a societal problem. This isn't something that's subject to unions or workplaces. Obviously, sexual harassment has no place here, but there's no reason to automatically assume that this is just going to become some giant epidemic at no evil foods just because a union comes in. And really stressing the fact that this is societal. You can't just blame this on unions and workplaces. This is silly. And she then uh, she told me I was coming from an apologist point of view and asked me if I thought since Harvey Weinstein was held accountable, that if that absolved him from what he did. And they, she's asking me this in front of the entire night staff. And it was just the most infuriating thing that I think happened to me personally throughout that whole process. It's just, you know, they don't know anything about me. They don't know anything that I've been through, things I've experienced. And to tell me that I'm coming from an apologist point of view for just pointing out that sexual harassment is societal and that you can't pin it on one corporation or company, it was mind-blowing to me. And I just didn't, I just wasn't ready for how horrible they were going to be to all of us. 
I want to hear from Max here in just a second too, just about some of these lessons learned. But what you're saying reminds, I was listening to audio from the captive audience meetings that you all were subjected to prior to us recording. And they are definitely infuriating. Like it was hard for me not to want to shout at my computer, which obviously is not the cause of my frustrations, right? The computer did nothing wrong. (laughs) But it reminded me of a book called Confessions of a Union Buster. And I just thought it would be good for our listeners to hear this quote from the book. So this is a book written by somebody who is considered a, uh, a cons- an HR consultant. So a union buster, did it for years and years, confessed all his sins. You know, I guess that's for the better, maybe something he did in the end that was good. And in the prologue, it says, quote, the only way to bust a union is to lie, distort, manipulate, threaten, and always, always attack. The law does not hamper the process. Rather, it serves to suggest maneuvers and define strategies. Each union prevention campaign, as the wars are called, turns on a combined strategy of disinformation and personal attacks. When a chief executive hires a labor relations consultant to battle a union, he gives the consultant run of the company and closes his eyes. The consultant, backed by attorneys, installs himself in the corporate offices and goes to work creating a climate of terror that inevitably is blamed on the union. Some corporate executives I encountered like to think of their anti-union consultants as generals, but really the consultants are terrorists. Like political terrorists, the consultants' attacks are intensely personal. And Megan, it sounds like you, at least at one particular moment, experienced that level of just the intense personal attack of the whole situation, the whole playbook that y'all have been talking about that companies run to bust unions. Oh, yeah. I was told over and over again for just pointing out basic things about the information they were giving us. It, it was nonstop. Essentially, I again, playing that defense, which I, if I could go back in time, I would not have even bothered engaging with them. Uh, also worth noting that a bunch of us asked not to be at these meetings, that we didn't want to be there, that we would rather be working. And uh, we were not allowed to sit them out. They made one guy get a doctor's note to prove he had a panic attack so he didn't have to sit through these. But so, yeah, but it wasn't just me, like, but they would go on and on. And, you know, we'd point out like a literal fact, like, oh, hey, these people embezzled. Yeah, that's really bad. But these people were also held accountable. And you can't hold an entire organization responsible for something that two people did and claim that that's a reason not to unionize your own workplace. And I'm pointing this out. And I have them telling me like, oh, well, you know, you can interpret it that way if you want. It was just a bunch of gaslighting. Like, no, dude, I'm stating facts. Like, it just became this whole thing about how, you know, oh, well, this is up for interpretation. But it's really not if you look at the reality of each situation they presented us. When we return from this musical break, we'll be hearing a leaked audio from a captive audience meeting conducted by owners of No Evil Foods. Until then, enjoy this song with appropriate subject matter, Shitty World by The Spits. Shitty world, oh oh, shitty world, oh oh, shitty 
Returning to our conversation with workers from No Evil Foods about union busting at the faux progressive company, you're going to hear some leaked audio from a captive audience meeting, and we'll discuss more about lessons learned and advice for workers hoping to organize their workplaces. If you enjoy our show, we're independently sustained through our subscribers on Patreon, so you can become a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. Also, please follow our content on SoundCloud and send us reviews through Apple Podcasts as it helps us reach new listeners. And finally, finally, this is me telling you that I know that no evil food isn't perfect. I know that we've made mistakes, but we have always tried to do right by you. We've always loved being on your team. I don't want to sit across a table from you. I want you all next to me. I want to face our challenges together. I want to learn from you. And I want to succeed with you. But I don't believe that the UFCW will help us reach our goals. I don't believe that the UFCW is going to make us more competitive or that it's going to save us if we're struggling. I don't want your individual voices to be silenced. Mike and I, we love this company. We have poured our heart and soul into this company. We've made sacrifices to try to do the best we could for you. And even though we're not profitable yet, we're already able to improve things so much. We've gotten so far in such a short amount of time, and everything we have we've gotten from listening and from working together. I don't want that to change. And now I will open the room for questions. Yes. All right. Uh, sorry, I was taking notes. There's a couple things I wanted to. Sure. Say, um, so you you made a comment that was like, I don't think this is a bad place to work. I don't think anybody here thinks that. Like, not even me. And at this point, you probably know that I'm quite a very loud pro union voice. Um, I appreciate but, that. But I I love this job. I've said it probably at every single meeting. Like, I'm not unhappy with the pay that you guys give us. This is the most I've ever made in my life. I'm about to sign up for healthcare benefits, which is amazing because I don't have that right now. So I in no way dislike this company at all. Having said that, uh, again, I'm really frustrated, not with the sources that are provided, like with this information that you're giving us. It's more so the way that it's presented because the, the cases and different issues that have been brought up and discussed about the UFCW Every single case that you guys have cited has been resolved, except for maybe these two. I haven't had the chance to look them up because you just showed them the one about the um, people not being fairly represented or their grievance claims, so I can go look that up later too. But every single one has been resolved. Even that case that you just cited, the one in Massachusetts with the stop-and-shop workers, the guy received 
back pay for all of his dues, the one that had the homophobic slurs shouted at him, he received back pay for all of his dues. And now at every single stop and shop, they have informational posters letting people know that they can withdraw from the union and they, they can cross picket lines if that's something that they feel like they need to do. So, again, it's, it's not so much the sources and it's not untrue what you're saying, but it, it's, it's like I said in one of the first meetings, like it comes off very misleading at least. I, I just don't understand why a lot of times we haven't been presented with the entire story here. And a lot of times I feel like these stories are, like somebody said, stories of accountability. And on top of that, the two um, articles that were on the table out there today, you cited them in here about like the ballet and the um, Chicago worker. I think it was an auto plant. Neither, none of those cases were the USCW. And I'm not understanding the relevance of it. Like sexual harassment in particular is a huge problem in society, but it's not exclusive to unions or even workplaces and that's something that I don't I don't know it just feels like I don't know I don't want to use the wrong word here but on top of that like less than one percent of all contract negotiations go into strike and I truly believe that if we were to sit down at you know a collective bargaining that we would be able to come to some kind of agreement I don't think that it would come to a strike. And like you said, you never know, but I, that's not something any of us want here. Um, and just this whole idea of the union coming in and, you know, protecting the rights of sexual harassers here, I just kind of feel like you can't have it both ways. It's like they're either going to represent us and it, I feel like it's kind of just being framed, you know, oh, well, they'll come represent you, but they'll come represent all the terrible sexual harassers and they'll be running rampant in the workplace. Like, it just doesn't come off to me as, I don't know. Well, let me address a couple of things. Yeah, I'm sorry. First of all, thank you for the things you said about your experience working for the legal food. I love really working here. I really do. Um, we want that to be the type of experience that people have working with us. Um, I guess your next point was... Um, it's okay, I know what I know, I just threw a lot of you. I'm sorry. Tell me real briefly what was your second point and then I'll Um I don't even remember it, let me see. <laughs> um just um not so much the sources that we were given were incorrect, just the way that they pr were presented. Gotcha. Very um, going back to sort of the story of accountability and, and, and that, um yes, those cases may have been resolved. The way that I see it is Harvey Weinstein. Right? We all know that he was eventually brought to trial and yes. held accountable for all of the um, abuse and um, things that he did to women. Does that make him absolved from the fact that he did those things? In my well, opinion, that's an individual, in opinion, not, no. I'm sorry. Right, right. right. An individual, individual though, not a company. But I, I feel like we're sort of, um, I don't want to take an apologist approach to this. You can explain away a lot of things, but for me, when I learn something about something that's systemic, about a system, if I'm thinking about entering into that system, I want to be really clear about the things that I'm entering into. And when I learn those things about that are, you know, inherently systematic in organized labor, it makes me give pause to, to getting um, involved with the union. Um, and it makes me really nervous. And when it comes to being a company that's able to be flexible, um, 
and address your individual concerns, that's something that makes me really excited about being a business owner. Having that flexibility, having that ability to touch each of your lives and meet you where you're at and help you with the, the issue of that day. That's something that keeps me very excited about running a company. And I feel like if we were to bring a union in, that would dampen my ability to do that. And I think that that's going to weaken our success overall as a company and it's going to weaken our success as a culture um, within No Evil Foods because we value each individual. And I think some of you have had the experience of benefiting from our ability to approach you as individuals and meet you where you're at and help you out. Um, um, no, I mean, I think I've said it before, and, and you pointed it out, I think that um, whether or not some of these cases have been resolved, whether or not, uh, let's take the example of the, uh, the, the person who had homophobic slurs tossed at them, getting the dues money back that was never supposed to be taken in the first place does not make that person's experience go away. It does not make the pain and the anguish... You may not be saying that, but to me it sounds like you're saying that. That's what I hear. What I hear is that it's okay that that happened because it was resolved. It's okay that the local 1208 embezzled money for four years because they made up for it. They, they went to jail. They got in trouble. I don't think that makes it okay. And maybe that's not what you meant, but that's not. what I'm hearing. Is it's a story of accountability means we fixed it, so it's not a big deal. But the hurt that that person felt when they had those slurs thrown at them the racism that was exhibited by union members at Stop and Shop. Quite frankly, things that I've heard in this facility in the last two weeks and the atmosphere that it's creating is not the values of this company. And this union and unionization in general seems to perpetuate values and behaviors that I do not want to be a part of our culture. And if, I mean, you can hear me and you can see me it upsets me, it scares me, it, it, it worries me. Um, and that's what I see when I hear these stories, is a systemic concern around the behavior that is perpetuated in the That's what I see. I, I just want to clarify for everybody in the room that I wasn't saying the bad things that happened with this union and other unions. I'm not saying that that makes it okay. Like... I'm part of the LGBTQ community. Obviously, it's never going to be okay if somebody's throwing slurs at somebody else. That's never okay. And it doesn't absolve the people for what was done and what they did. But being held accountable, I think, speaks to how it would be approached if something terrible like that were to happen to any of us. When I say stories of accountability, it's just literally that, people being held accountable for wrongdoing. So Megan, when we went over today, she was that they, they don't have to fight for you in those cases. They don't. And they haven't they, they been accountable. I mean, the, the gentleman with the homophobic slurs, that was the NLRB that held, that held the union accountable. It wasn't the union holding itself accountable. But they were held accountable, is what I'm saying. I, we have government agencies that can hold people accountable in all sorts of different ways, in my opinion. And so, I mean, uh, part of our argument has been that we have things like OSHA and other other government agencies that can hold our company accountable if we're, if we're bad actors. And, you know, you basically said so yourself that we're not bad actors. And so it becomes challenging to work through the logic around, around that, around what can the union, and I'm not asking the question, but I ask myself, I, I'm just, I don't, I don't see what the union provides. 
question. Max, I'm curious if you had uh, things that you would like to share in addition to what's already been expressed, like lessons learned, things you wish you had known, what you now would be prepared for if you had to run this whole thing over again. I think for starters, I would I would have wanted to look into other unionization options besides just sticking with the UFCW. Not to say that they're, you know, bad or a bad choice, but it just sounds like there's lots of other options available. And I think that being such a big union opened us to a lot of, it just gave us a lot of openings for the company to make all the kind of claims that they were making. A smaller organization or something that was more like, we spoke with the uh, IWW, I think in at the beginning of March, <laughs> right before everything hit the fan pandemic wise. And so we didn't know how many turnovers were going to be happening in the next month. But we were, you know, already thinking of the next potential election. And I know they were talking about how there's a lot more options to kind of tailor things to fit your people and your company and also to keep it so that it's, you know, your union can be maybe less a part of a bigger, you know, union group and really just be more like a small personalized thing. I do think that the company definitely, you know, gave us a lot of butchered truths in terms of the, the, uh, articles they gave us that did you know left information out or like megan said you know them denying <laughs> the facts about these these news articles that they presented us in the first place i i think there would be less of that if it was just a smaller organization within the company so that it would kind of jive with their idea of like us all working together being a family and it would just look better for the for the people who are hesitant i think i guess another thing is that i feel like People just in all industries these days are very just kind of illiterate on like their own labor rights and on unionization stuff. And I think that's pointed. I mean, I think that's that's sort of a, an unspoken just kind of thing that business culture in America has tried to instill in people, like make them ambivalent or even fearful about unions instead of knowing the things they can do. And I think, you know, this year more than anything else has shown how important labor rights are because you know, the market and businesses and corporations are going to do everything they can to look out for themselves above all the people who work for them. Like this year has, I don't know how anyone could not see that after what's been going on throughout the pandemic. I think we kind of tended to like, we tried to get people on board with what unions could do. But I think the core group of us who ended up being the ones who voted yes, were people who are a little more educated on like, the importance of unions in a very, in a much more general sense and not just in like, oh, well, what can you, because a lot of times that was a way that I think they would try to oppose us during the meetings was try to turn it to where like we seemed like, oh, like all these things that you're saying about unions and about the things you need to protect are true, you know, at Walmart, at Amazon, but not, you know, this is no evil foods. We're a small company. We're looking out for you. We have your back. Surely you're just, you know, they kind of tried to make it seem like us wanting our workers' rights was some kind of like us being scared of some kind of boogeyman or something. And I think they used that to make us seem like we were being reactionary or irrational. I just think if we work harder to to get to the people who maybe aren't as ingrained into left-leaning politics as many of us who are the biggest parts of the drive were, like if we could really reach out and try to help people more, um, it would you know, I think we ended up with kind of a more insular group than we realized, where we had a lot of people who showed support on a very surface level. But as soon as pressure was applied from the company, they, you know, were given they had all this room for doubts and 
and confusion about like what what we actually wanted from the union, what the union could do, and what the company you know would or would not do. Yeah, the what you are expressing here, there's a couple of different thoughts that popped immediately to my mind. One of them is that I've seen this happen with other union campaigns where there's this unfortunate development where kind of a core group becomes more like a secret society than, you know, an outward facing mass organization. Right. So it gets harder and harder to like reach more of those workers that are maybe on the fence, maybe in the middle, maybe uncertain, prone to fear and third partying rhetoric from the company. Because the prior experience has been so much like cultivating a core network of people and like a more of a community, and you're so uncertain about going public that you almost start becoming like an underground vanguard. Uh, and it's a really hard phase to break out of, I think. I think almost all campaigns go in that direction. And then there has to be this moment where deliberately the choice is made to break out of that mold. And it's, I think it's really difficult. So it kind of sounds like maybe that was happening with you all too in ways that was hard to shift the gears. The other thing you're saying though about um, chopping around for different unions is interesting to me because I've, I've seen some like pretty hilarious stuff about the IWW from companies when the IWW has tried to organize campaigns at different workplaces. In particular, I remember Jimmy John's when uh, this was a, IWWs don't always go for a recognition. That's not like the end goal for all their campaigns. But in this particular campaign, they were seeking recognition from the NLRB. And some of the anti-union stuff that Jimmy John's decided to put out really focused on the IWW as this like totally radical, lefty, scary organization wants to build the new society out of the ashes of the old. And uh, they would talk a lot about their anti-capitalist politics and how Jimmy John's just believes in making good sandwiches. So it's pretty hilarious stuff. So I don't know that going one route or the other different bigger organizations helps much with the third partying that is like the standard playbook of companies. I, I don't know. I just have, I guess I'm just throwing it out there. So thinking about the IWW, I'm sorry for rambling here, meandering a little <laughs> bit, but thinking about the IWW, I'm curious what you all think now. If you're given the choice to redo the campaign, would you have sought recognition from the NLRB or do you think you would try to have more campaigns focused on winning issues and improvements immediately on the job? What the IWW does, uh, I, I think the term is called solidarity unionism. And that is like, we, we experimented with that after the, after the union election with the COVID uh, outbreak. And as COVID was starting to unfold and as people were worrying, management wasn't really doing a whole lot. So they ended up giving everybody an option to uh, either quit or quit with like some kind of a payout or um, stay. And then you got the promise of hazard pay after 90 days of perfect attendance if you ended up staying. So the people who ended up staying were like, well, that's kind of bullshit. Why are, why are we going to wait 90 days to get hazard pay when there's a pandemic right now? So uh, we got a petition going and that kind of ties into the whole NLRB charge that I filed. But this petition amassed a majority of signatures very quickly. And so it brought everybody together for the first time. That I'd, I'd never seen that workplace like together like that. And if we had more of that prior to the actual union campaign or a, a union election, I feel like we probably would have won or come a whole lot closer to winning because everybody was together on that. And if you have a couple instances where you have people coming together for an issue, coming together for an issue, I think it would be a lot harder for management to slip in there and say, 
well, you, you know, you, you don't know about this or you don't know who these people are. Or, Do you really want to trust this union? Because you've already got that cohesiveness there with, with your workforce. I think that I actually really like the IWW's model. I, I'll be honest and say I didn't even actually know what the IWW was until um, after we had lost the election and we had gotten in contact with them to talk about, you know, different things that we could do. I like their model for unionization much better because it focuses on that solidarity among the workforce instead of, you know, focusing on whatever outside organization that you want to bring in. So, yeah, if I was to do it over again, I, I'd organize with the IWW. Yeah, I think that's really interesting for transparency. I think listeners that have listened to the show in the past know that I am a member of the IWW. I also am an organizer for Mainstream Labor Union. So I've seen kind of both molds. And I think one of the real kind of existential questions that the broader labor movement needs to resolve is its relationship and its approach to labor law specifically. And I think this is where the IWW has a lot to offer because they have always been premised on the idea that unions are for workers' power, and that doesn't necessarily mean you have to win uh, legal recognition or a contract, that you can organize on the issues on the shop floor, hold power in that way, and that doesn't have to be contractually bounded. And a lot of the other unions, I think, just there's a long historical development here, but for ease in many ways, ease of administration, have opted for the recognition campaign, and it is clearly coming to an end. I just, this is my prediction for the show, for you all. I think labor law is a dead end. It is totally over, and we've got to start figuring out how to run campaigns that aren't just totally premised on recognition um, and winning a contract. Not that you have to abandon them entirely, but like there's some clear limitations. It sounds like you all really butted up against the limitations of a contract campaign. Yeah, and there's there is something to be said for the idea of that contract. Um, I think the company was able to kind of make that more of a scary thing than something we'd be winning because I think they tried to frame it like if we set stuff down in stone, it would make us lose you know a certain flexibilities and make it. Se- they, I think they made it seem like a contract was a bad thing that was going to come in and dictate every little, you know, all the minutiae of our work day um, in ways that we couldn't possibly comprehend, you know, while it was still a hypothetical thing. And so, yeah, maybe that could have ironically turned people off because they were, you know, I mean, I understand people are scared of signing in to, you know, follow strict guidelines from big, you know, organizations that have lots of money. Like that's not something that's strictly uh, wrong to be wary of, but it definitely was something that they were able to turn against us. Just to say, like, uh, I find it amusing, the fear mongering around how the contract will confine you in all these ways, because having been on that end of being a staff person trying to service grievances and enforce a contract, good Lord, I wish it was actually followed to the letter. <laughs> like it's, It is so difficult to actually implement contracts, even when you win that language. This is a lot of battles that I just think folks need to be prepared for and understand. And like even winning a contract, the enforcement side of it, in my view, is actually more difficult than winning the language in the first place. So how would you go about talking to workers today? Like knowing what you know now, what would your conversation with a coworker or somebody that's trying to build a union in whatever company it might be, what would that look like for you? How do you, how would you talk to them? 
Um, I think what it really boils down to is, like I said before, like focusing on the issues. You know, if you're working at a grocery store and, you know, mass as far as with COVID now, masks not being enforced or some sort of safety issue that you see, I would focus on low hanging fruit first. You know, okay, let's see, we have this safety issue right here. Engage your coworkers with that. Hey, why don't we fix this? Bringing it up casually in conversation and not necessarily even opening up to talking about a union right off the bat and just focusing on the issues that you have in your workplace. Because like we were talking about before, if you focus on like the IWW's approach of the workplace, you know, solidarity, you don't necessarily need union recognition to band together as workers and fix a problem at your workplace. So I think the approach that I that I'll take now and you know what I'll do in the future no matter where I go is take note of what people are upset about try to find out what people's biggest concerns are in the workplace and then use that as a jumping off point. We found that uh petitions as well were pretty effective at least as far as the hazard pay when it no evil foods just getting something on paper that nobody can really disagree with. Like it's easy to, I've said this a hundred times, but it's easy to convince people that they don't need a union, but it's harder to convince them they don't deserve safe conditions or that they don't deserve more pay or that they don't deserve more benefits. It's much harder to convince a person that's going into a workplace and working day in and day out that they don't deserve more for their labor. So I think from now on, I'll take it from that approach. I could say as far as advice goes in in building a campaign, one of the most important things to do is to document everything and record everything. If you have meetings, record your meetings. If you have a meeting, just like a one-on-one meeting, take note of it, take notes about it, the time, the date, who you talk to, what it was about. And everybody has a phone. So, I mean, it's really easy to record anything on your phone, especially if it's just audio. My my biggest conflict, uh, I think, is one of the approaches I, I would try to use, I think, to gauge people was to let people know as soon as possible, as soon as, soon as you know, someone who is newer started to see kind of the veil slip of seeing like, oh, they treated us this way or they asked us to do something that seems like, you know, kind of like bullshit to me. I would try to be like, oh, well, did you hear about when they changed the schedule when they did this and that to try to be like, you know, even though they say they're looking out for us you know, at most, like, the at the end of the day, like, they have the power to change anything and everything. And that was a big talking point that I tried to use that got people on board early on. But then when we would have these captive audience meetings, like I said, with, with the contract stuff, and just the stuff they were saying, they kind of flipped that fear against us where it was like, oh, being in the union means the union will change everything and anything, which, you know, I think is an oversimplification coming from both sides but like i don't know how to deal with there's just kind of this implicit trust that i feel like people will have for their employers or something you know maybe it's because like you said we felt like this kind of secret society this underground thing that very much was kind of the experience we had and maybe because you know I, i wasn't there for those uh hazard pay petitions i had left the company by that point but it sounds like that being a more visible show of solidarity was effective. So I would want to look at how you break down 
people's kind of inherent trust of the company, which I think is more based off of it's based off of the trust, but it's also based off of like this inherent fear of going against the company. It's like feels like this very like hostage situation trust to me in a general sense. And I, I, I guess I would try to figure out how to come up against that more. I'm really glad you brought that up because that is something I wanted to specifically ask you all about is how do you overcome the kind of company line, particularly when it's a company that touts its like progressive credentials, even even socialist credentials in y'all's case. I mean, it's not usual that companies come out and they like steal uh, words like comrade and put it on their brand, on their products. But I've been reading this book by Sarah Jaffe called Work Won't Love You Back. And a lot of the core arguments of the book is talking about how under capitalism today, the imposition to love your work, to love your company, to love the job that you have is very like present. It's much more pronounced than maybe it has been historically. And it sounds like you all really dealt with a company that used that consistently. The idea that you are a big family, families love each other, I guess, although just saying like, I don't love everybody in my family. <laughs> and having that almost like pulling out your heartstrings and kind of like the guilt and shame and the fear, all of that seems like just a package deal. And Max, what you're saying is like figuring out how to push back against that would have been really beneficial. How do you all think you could go about that now? This is not just No Evil Foods, but No Evil Foods in particular seems like it was really using that love your job, love your family kind of narrative against you all. I I had a literal conversation with someone once where uh, she said, oh, this is a really good company to work for, you know. They offer organic coffee in the break rooms, and a lot of companies wouldn't do that. <laughs> and look, that's a nice thing to have coffee in the break room that's not complete crap. Like, I'm not arguing against that, but like, the bar is so low for people. I, I think I said it like, even as I was dealing with problems that I had with No Evil, and I think I said this in some of the captive audience meetings when we were trying to defend that we weren't trying to like demonize the company or something, because they did a good enough job of doing that themselves. That like, it was still, you know, look, it was among the better places I've worked for because the bar is set so low. And so I think maybe because people have such low expectations, maybe we need to focus more on the success stories of what unions or just solidarity, collective, you know, worker movements have gotten for people so that they can see that it can maybe come out to something that is so much larger and with bigger ramifications than, you know, snacks in the break room and stuff or home cooked meals every week, which are things that the company did that again, were cool and awesome and nice, but like, weren't a substitute for the kind of things we were trying to get people on board with, even though they were being like, they were being tossed up as if like, like, say they were, I remember they told us that like, you know, those are things they might have to cut out if there was like a union contract they did that they didn't know, you know, how the money would look or how they'd be allowed to do that if it would seem like they were you know trying to bribe us or i don't know they they offered stuff and it's so crazy to think that those were the bargaining chips that they were using were like free employee meals versus like hey maybe we don't have our schedule changed without our input on whether we think that's a good idea or not it reminds me of um delta airlines i think this was like maybe two or three years ago at this point trying to encourage union members to opt out of their union dues by enticing them with uh you could buy an Xbox with all that money you would save. Oh my God. <laughs> or I mean, it's literally the Simpsons thing where it's like, all right, so they're going to give us a free keg of beer for our meetings. 
as long as we just give up our dental plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'd, I'd be interested to hear from Megan and John too on this question of like, how do you push back on that idea that this is a big family and that y'all should love the company and love each other through your work? For me, especially, it's really such a tough thing because I don't inherently, I mean, I feel like most people feel this way, but I don't inherently think there's anything wrong. You can love your job and you can even love your boss and like spending time with them and be happy that you're working for that person. But at the end of the day, I just like you have to get find a way to get people to realize that in most instances of people trying to unionize, you are the lowest paid employee at the company. Even if you like your wage, you're the lowest paid employee at your company. And your boss is the highest paid person at your company. And their main driver is profit. They like Mike and Sadra can be as progressive. I say that in quotes as they want, but they didn't start this company because, oh, you know, we want a team of people that we love and care about. No, they want money. Like it's a, it's capitalism. They want profits. It's getting people to realize that profits are the main driver of any company, even the ones that you like. And it is a really hard thing to overcome. And I can't even say that I've figured out completely how to make people understand that your boss can be the nicest guy in the world, but he's still putting profits over you. That's just inherently how our system is, whether the boss likes it or not, or whether you like it or not. I'm still trying to figure that one out, honestly. Well, I think it's totally fair, too, to highlight how it's hard to internalize the sober reality that you're just an exploited worker at the end of the day. Like that really sucks. <laughs> uh, recognizing the kind of powerlessness of that situation, that exploitation is like fundamentally at the root of your lived daily experience. So I, I hear what you're saying and I get it. Like, I think it's definitely hard to overcome that. It's, it's just like this family narrative that they talk about. And I mean, they could give us free coffee and they can give us a free meal once a week and, uh, throw parties and stuff. But while they're doing that at the same time, they're also like, well, yeah, if you want hazard pay in the middle of a unprecedented global pandemic, then you just got to, you got to have 90 days of perfect attendance to get it. But you know, we're a family. So if you could take those like little slippings of the mask where like that, that illusion of your boss being your best buddy comes off and, and just take advantage of that as soon as possible and show people expose it and say, wait a second. I thought, like, you know, it's great that they're, you know, on our side and everything. At least they're, they're acting like they are. But why are they doing this? That's kind of weird. And you're just kind of like planting these little seeds of doubt, kind of like Max said that he was doing. And I caught on to like Max, like he said, he gave me my union card. And and Mine too. and a lot of the the little cracks in the illusion started when I started talking to Max. And because he'd been there longer than I had at that point. And like I, I had moved from out of state to take the job. So I was coming into it like with pretty high expectations because it, it seemed like exactly the kind of company that I'd love to work for. I mean, you know, if you look at their branding and anybody would look at the, the face of the company and say, wow, this is awesome. I want to be a part of that. This is cool. And then, you know, you get there and then you start seeing people like Max who have been there for a, a bit longer than I have. And they start to say, well, this is weird. Why are there holes in the gloves or why are we doing more work than they said we were going to do tonight when they set a goal and we surpassed that goal? And now we're doing three or four more cooks on top of that. And it's already, you know, like we got an hour before we have to leave. And why are they trying to make us work the day before Christmas? And why are they trying to like little things like that? And you start picking up on that. And if you can just 
find a way to pinpoint that and illuminate it for other people who might not see it, I think that's really important. And that kind of breaks that illusion of them being like this progressive company. I've really appreciated y'all's insights around organizing this union campaign. Uh, I want to bring us to a conclusion, and I thought it would be good to, clearly there are a lot of just distressing uh, things to highlight in the in y'all's experience organizing a union against this faux progressive company. But you also won some things. There were victories along the way. And I was hoping that we can end by highlighting some of those places where improvements had been made or you do feel like you had some victories, even if they were relative. Wait, can I, can I mention, I, there's one thing that I want to mention before we get into all the positive stuff. If you give me the floor for like two seconds. Sure. I just feel compelled to mention this because the company has made cl- very vague and very serious claims against the organizers and they don't specify who, but there is an article in Veg News where Mike and Sadra, the owners, claim that, and I quote this, they claim that organizers have taken in big union money, that we have extorted them, that we have threatened their family and their children, and that we've encouraged people to harass them, and all of these other, and that we're lying, and all of these other crazy claims. And I just really, really want to put it out there on any sort of public forum that I go to that I would just really love to sit down with them and find out more about that because I'd really like to know if they're accusing me or John or Max or anybody of extortion because that's a really serious and false claim. Sorry, it really bothers me. I wasn't sure the right time to throw that in there, but I'd really still like to know about these claims that they're making against us. Absolutely. Yeah, before getting into the victories... I'll just share this off of what you're saying is that the playbook for management for companies against unions is to lie, distort, intimidate, threaten, and break the rules. Companies break the law all the time because it's the penalties for them are worth the risk, right? They're worth it to bust unions. I encourage people out there planning on organizing their workplaces to really prepare for the aggressive anti-union attacks that you will experience, and they'll be ruthless. Just trying to encourage the point you were making there. Confessions of a Union Buster is a great book. Uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned that, because if you hadn't, I probably would have. Uh, I actually just got a copy of it recently. It's illuminating. It's, it's, <laughs> it's everything we went through and everything that anybody who ever organizes a union is going to go through. It's like a play-by-play. I was sitting there reading it, and I'm like, wow, this happened. Wow, this happened. Well, this, this whole book, is what just happened. 100%. Well, I'm glad that you all shared these uh, practical uh, experiences and the advice that you would give now. So I do want to end on a more positive note, if it's possible. I, maybe it's not possible to end on positive notes during the world historic pandemic that we're in. There were victories along the way, and I think, John, you mentioned some of them in the wake of the pandemic. So what things do you all feel like have been improved? What What did you gain over the this experience? And what glimmers of hope do you want to leave our listeners with as we conclude here? I feel like the experience itself was definitely something that is life-changing in a way because it's hard to go to another job and start over and say, oh, wow, you know, now I'm doing this again. And, you know, it, 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 it was just very eye-opening. That alone is is a positive for me. I, I feel like if I hadn't gone through this, I would just be slogging through job after job, you know, for the rest of my life. And and maybe this would have never happened. And that's definitely a plus. But as far as like 
more tangible things. Uh, I feel like the hazard rate petition was definitely a win and they knew it was a win. And that's why they fired me because basically they, and this kind of ties into the NLRB uh, charge because as, as the hazard pay petition was being passed around, I was pulled off the production floor by the director of human resources, Drew Pollock. And he asked me uh, about the petition, which is a violation under the NLRA. He asked me if it was associated with the union. And he was, it was basically him questioning me about a petition for hazard pay and uh, whether or not it was connected to the union drive that had just happened. And the day after, the day we were about to hand the petition in, because I had told Drew, and I wanted him to know, I, I wanted them all to know, we have a petition. It has a majority of signatures. We're about to turn it in. And yeah, I mean, that's just the truth. And you can take what you do what you want with it. The next day, they announced hazard pay. They jumped in front of the petition before we could turn it in. And they acted like it was their idea. They did not once use the word petition when they announced the hazard pay. And um, yeah, I mean, even though they took credit for it, everybody who works there, who was there for that petition, and everybody who was, I mean, everybody who was there knew that that hazard pay came because of that petition. And then maybe it was three or four weeks later, I was fired for for violating social distancing guidelines, if, if you know about what happened to Chris Smalls with Amazon. But they, they just tore a page right out of the Amazon playbook and, and fired me over that. But yeah, I, I feel like the petition was definitely a win. And the the backlash against them online is a huge win because if you go on Twitter, if you go on Instagram and, you, and somebody's saying, oh, I just had, you know, Comrade Cluck for the first time. This is great. And then you just say, oh, well, have you heard about what they did this? Have you heard about the union busting? Or, you know, you, you plug MoEvilFoods.com. They go and they look and like nine times out of 10, they're like, holy crap, I didn't know this. I, I don't want to be associated with this. And I feel like a part of their problem specifically with their branding is that the types of people who are attracted to this product would never buy from them if they knew that they were union busting. And they would never support a company like this if they knew. And so just getting people to know opens their eyes immediately, like nine times out of 10. And they're like, wow, this is, this is awful. I'm never going to buy this again. This is the last time I'm going to buy this product. So that's good. And then the, the NLRB, I mean, the NLRB found merit in uh, my charge and the charge of somebody else who was also a petition organizer and a union organizer and was fired for a dress code violation. And they found merit in both of our cases and uh, no evil ended up settling out of court because they knew if it went to court, they would have lost because all the evidence is stacked against them. And they don't have a leg to stand on. And that's their problem. And that's why they're trying to censor all of this information off the internet. It's why they're trying to copyright claim all of the audio that's been leaked. And so much more of it hasn't been leaked. And it needs to because what's out there is only like a quarter of the actual content of the recordings. And if anything, it's not even at this point really about exposing them because I feel like they've been exposed. But the audio recordings will almost absolutely help somebody who is going through a union drive. And if they sit there and they listen to just 45 minutes of any of the meetings or any of the audio, they'll come away from it and say, oh my God, like this is perfect in the sense of inoculating people against what to expect from their manager or their boss or their company when they end up going through a union drive. So the audio itself is like so important too. And I think it's really good that that's been put out there. And I feel like I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to let somebody else talk. <laughs>
I mean, yeah, I, of course, again, I second everything that uh, John said. It was a really major win. I, I think it's amazing that um, the NLRB came through and found merit in, you know, the charges against no evil because, I mean, everybody who was there knew they were blatantly firing organizers. You know, another thing worth mentioning is that uh, after John and Courtney were both fired, um, Courtney's the other one that won the NLRB case, but after they were both fired, you know, so these two people, they got fired and they still helped me put together two petitions. One was to uh, make the hazard pay permanent. And the other one was, uh, it was worded kind of funny, but it was like to reevaluate some of the more recent firings, not just John and Courtney, but to reevaluate some of the more recent firings and uh, get clarification on disciplinary action and the way that it's carried out and the process in which you know, no evil is expected to follow in order to fire a person because people, you know, getting fired on the spot for pants that are, you know, a quarter inch above their ankle, you know, nonsense like that. And, uh, they, you know, they still helped me put these petitions together. And I still got about maybe a quarter of the staff to sign it. But of course, you know, that fell through to an extent just because, you know, they're seeing all these organizers get fired. They can see Mike and Sadra looking from the office window, watching me in the parking lot, walking around, getting signatures for these things. And it, 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 that goes into like how everybody just kind of kind of fell off the organizing drive. They, they did a really good job in creating that climate of fear. But as far as petitions in general go, if something really bad happens there, you know, none of us are there anymore. But maybe, you know, somebody who was there at the time will remember and maybe an issue comes up and they'll remember that petitions were a really effective way of uh, getting management to pay attention to what they're doing to their employees. So, you know, at the very least, there's an outlet that worked and was successful. So now that workplace knows that if something comes up, that's something that they can do just to start to kind of exercise their rights uh, in the workplace. Like, and again, the winning of the NLRB cases was great. And also, like John said, I am never going to be able to look at another workplace the same again. <laughs> I don't want to go as far as to thank Mike and Sadra for radicalizing me further, but it did happen. I mean, I've taken this as a, a learning experience, and this is the kind of stuff that I will bring to every workplace <laughs> that I go, hopefully with more success this time. I just wanted to throw this into um, part of the NLRB settlement is that they have to post this flyer in a visible place for 60 days. And on this flyer, it says that employees have the right to organize. They have a right to form a union. And it says a bunch of other stuff, but there's there's basically, they have to post this up for the next 60 days, which is just like this message saying, you have the, the legal right to form or join a union. There are still people there who I know for a fact are pro union who might see that and they might see an issue and maybe they'll put one and one together and or a new person, you know, somebody else might join and join in the company and see that and say, well, this place has a lot of issues. Why don't we try to get a union in here? Most of the victories that I feel like I saw were definitely more in that like kind of personal experience realm of just like I had come from working uh, in hotels right before this and with large companies where people were getting bought out and like policies were getting changed, you know, all of a sudden. And so I definitely had like a cynicism about what what I could expect, but I still, you know, allowed myself to be like, oh, but this company is going to be different because they're smaller and they have, you know, this kind of messaging, blah, blah, blah. So I think this really did 
make me realize once and for all, like the, the messaging and the size of the company doesn't really matter. But like, I guess on a, a converse level, I think a, a victory might be that we saw that like, it's okay, like that, that, that victories can be won in like such a small company. Like, it did make me feel very encouraged to see that we got as far as we did. Because there were many times in the organization where I thought things were going to kind of flounder and end up just kind of going out with a whimper, as it were, because we had a lot of turnover and a lot of people changing, you know, I don't know if the company was specifically doing that to counter, you know, union drive, I don't think so, because I don't think they were really aware that it was going on with any capacity. But like, the fact that we actually got to a point where enough people were at least initially willing to take the plunge to try to get this drive going that we got an election off the ground, even though we made a lot of errors. And even though the company did a lot to fight us in ways that were really shocking and startling to me. Um, I think the experience of it, like seeing that it can be done and that it needs to be done in a lot of cases was really important because like, I don't know, when, when we had the election, I was uh, the representative for the like union voters that was there to like certify the votes and watch them be counted by the NLRB and stuff. And I remember the guy who was there for the company kind of snarkily said to the woman from the NLRB, like, Oh, so is this the smallest uh, union vote that you ever had to come out to do? Because, you know, that was a big thing that the company tried to always say time and again was like, oh, you don't need a union because we're such a small company. But like she was like, actually, I just got back from one, you know, a week ago where it was a company with three employees and they were voting to unionize. So like a big positive takeaway from this is just knowing like going into any job like you, you, everyone should know you've got to look out for yourself like the company is going to look out for themselves as an organization and not you as an individual. So like you can and do need to figure out how to express your will to to take that charge instead of allowing the job to dictate things for you, because that's become such a big part of just work culture in the modern world. I don't want to harp too much again on the pandemic thing, because I think we're all aware of the things we're seeing, but like we've seen so much of people being forced to go against their own health and safety, go against what they might decide to do to like adapt to what the companies want from people because they're going to, you know, try to keep trucking forward. So like, it's so important now, I think for everyone to be aware that like, you need to stick up for your well-being because like, this is your livelihood. We live in a society, you're going to have to work and do something. You need to be more active in dictating the parameters of that because otherwise you're just going to get exploited. Well put. Well, with that, I want to thank you all for taking the time to come on Labor Wave. I appreciate, too, the sentiment that was expressed by each of you in conclusion there. Uh, We say on the show a lot that the working class are the grave diggers of capitalism, and it sounds like No Evil Foods has at least cultivated and developed its own grave diggers amongst you three and all the future employers that are going to have to deal with you uh, and your refined skills at organizing. So kudos there. But Max, Megan, John, thanks so much for talking to us on Labor Wave. Thanks for having us. Thank you.